come with us. Into the wild wood.
Welcome, fellow travellers, into the Wildwood Pagan Podcast with your hosts, myself, Lee Oredok, and Rev Kai on the other side of the pond. Okay. So, all the usual stuff give us a thumbs up, give us a like, share, give us a comment, throw something in the chat, give us a question. All that stuff, you know, all the stuff. It's YouTube, we've been doing it for a long time, so, you know, everybody knows. And check out the link in the description, you'll find our Discord on our Linktree link. Um, where you can go and carry on conversations there. I uh, hope everybody's had a good week. Uh, let's see, Lady Capera's here. Happy birthday to Lady Capera, who is turning 60. Happy birthday. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Lady Capera is entering the sixth dimension. All right. <laughs> um, Dev's here. Hello, Deb. Yolandi's here. Gokin Cthulhu. <laughs> <laughs> and Richard, hello Richard. <laughs> Hope everybody's good. Good now time to everybody. Okay, so we're doing time magic today. Um which I think is a very important and interesting topic, but it is not one that you're going to find very much information about in books. Or on, the, or on the internet, or anywhere, really. And Kerry's just joined us. Hello, Kerry. Hello, hello. I did go and have a, a quick search um, on Google for time magic, time manipulation, something like that. And really, it's just gaming um, or basically business applications, time management, um, how to um, kind of manipulate your time so that you can have more time to do things that you need to do and things like that. Which in a sense is kind of magic itself, but... Uh, I'm sure it could be to some people. Could be, yeah. Well, it is manipulating time to get more time. This is what we're doing. Time magic. Just not quite the same thing. Yeah, not quite the same thing. Yeah, I suppose <laughs> I could find an argument for that. <laughs> well, I mean, if we consider that linear time isn't real, we can manipulate it by through various time time management means in order to alter perception of that time. Yeah, but I would say that the people that are doing time management very, very firmly believe in linear time. Yeah. Yeah. Part of the, no, the the cornerstone of their worldview. All right, uh, where should we kick off with time magic? I think probably the most obvious one is the Chaos Magic Servitor uh, for Tamakus, um, which has been mentioned on here before. Um, so for Tamakus, let me just actually this is actually a free document. I'm going to. Put it in the um, Discord server. I remember. Um, let me try and get to the information here. So, Photomicus is considered to be a time of God. It was created by um, some chaos magicians in the 1990s, mid 1990s. Um, and then it just, other people started using it and it sort of took off. Um, I think the obvious warning with Photomicus is that if you are going to speed up time, 
you're going to have to remember that at some point it's going to slow down and vice versa. Um, which is, I've found that to be true when you're working with Photomicus at least. I've, I've read about Photomicus, several people have brought it up, but that's not how I mess mm. around with time. And back when I was learning time magic, discovering time magic, teaching it to myself, whatever, when I was figuring this out, it was the late 90s, early 2000s, and I didn't know about Photomicus. Just, you know, mm. the internet was not the burgeoning part of everyday life that it is now. And that just wasn't available to me in the middle of nowhere. So didn't didn't have any uh, idea about it until much, much later, very recently. And I did when I've tried stuff, it doesn't work for me. But well, I know yeah, I know for a lot of other people, yeah. it works great and cool. Mm -hmm. If it works, it works. But I smile when you say that if you're going to speed up time, there will be a corresponding slowdown in time. What what a belief in linear time. I know, I know, that is, that is absolutely... That, that's the interesting part, that when working with Photonic, because I found it myself, you do get that, that um, you know, if you slow it down, it's going to speed up. If you speed it up, it's going to slow down. So there seems to be that, that um, balancing effect with this particular servitor. Yeah, well... Uh, which is quite interesting. Because if it was created on the principle of linear time, then that's probably what it's going to work. Yep, yep. And, and you know, that's something in a larger scheme of things to think about when working with various deities, spirits, servidors, egregores, all of that. Um, they come from worldviews too, and you can't break those. Mm -hmm. You have to work within the confines of the worldview when you engage with those spirits, even if your worldview is different, which is kind of the foundation of chaos magic. But I honestly think a lot of people in chaos magic aren't doing that. Not not at a, a big level to do things like switch between linear time and nonlinear time. That's just too fundamental for, yeah. for most people to be able to to change that piece of their worldview. Yeah, I mean, according to Chaos Magic, they should be able to. I mean, it's all about suspending belief and taking on a new belief in order to accomplish a task. But I don't think, um, I don't think most people who are doing Chaos Magic actually realize that. Mm. Um, well, and suspending belief uh, and suspending disbelief are not the same as changing worldviews. You can't mm. just flip it off and flip it on. So I don't know that, I don't know. I don't want to judge other people's practices, but, you know, I read a lot about it and people's experiences and especially uh, their frustrations. I tried to do this. It didn't work. What am I doing wrong? I mean, that's the thing that, you know, comes up in forums and everything else. People aren't always coming and asking questions about their successes. It worked, it worked, and you can keep going on. So, and, and I find that that disconnect in worldview can often be an easy underlying cause for why didn't this work? But anyways, time magic, slight, slight mm. diversion. <laughs> well, Luna's here, says happy now time. Hello. Um, right again. Do most obviously in need of assessment. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Richard asks, can I use it to speed up the last hour on a work day and get a few more minutes of sleep in the morning? Yes. So yes, you can. Especially, you know, you know if, you, if you consider for Tabakut, if you do speed it up. What's probably going to happen, though, is speed up the last hour, you might get, you know, thinking in linear time terms, you'll probably get two hours after work like it, it feels you don't get you don't you know, like a 24 hour doesn't become a 25 day it's a perception of time so you know the perception of time is it's faster and then all of a sudden everything slows down you know like those long weeks and those january 500 million 231 <laughs> day january's you know <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, so it's, it's about a perception of time regarding linear time in the act. And Charlene, if Kat has joined us, hello. Hello. Yeah, when, when I work right. with time, I yeah. don't have that that corresponding balance. Because why? You know. Mm. Yeah, because that is specifically linear time. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about linear versus lack of time. Linear time's man-made, brilliant. <laughs> well, linear time is uh, probably part of the grid cells and the place cells that fire in our brain. Um, there have been studies mostly on rats, uh, but they seem to apply to humans in the way that a lot of neuroscience does that as we move through a space we have cells that fire at certain intervals and there's a range of them you know this cell fires at at one foot this cell fires at one and a half this cell fires at six foot so on and so forth whatever right and they help us map out the space that we move through and it actually gets mapped on a hexagonal grid which is very interesting about the way the world works, not a square grid. Uh, so every area that we move through has a different combination of grid cells that fire. Spot one might be just the A grid cell, spot two might be the A and the C, spot three is the A and the B, so on and so forth. And this is part of the way that our brain maps space. We also have egocentric mapping, which means it's a little more conscious and it's how we relate to things in our environment. That's a desk. That's a tree. That's a, you know, signpost, whatever. And we have ways of mapping those in our environment. And we seem to relate both of these cell-firing patterns to the passage of time. Because after all, when we move through space, we are moving through time even though we can also not move through space and move through time. We seem to be stuck on a forward arrow of time because, I mean, we're beings of light and we have matter, and so we're stuck between those finite boundaries of, of mass light and mass matter, mass speed and mass not speed, um, lack of velocity. So we have recruited these base grid cells, this mapping, um, layer in order to experience time in our brains. And because of that, we have literally internal clocks. We may um, 
understand them on macro scales. As many people grow up, they have internal clocks um, that tell them, you know, I need to mate, I need to pair bond, I need to produce um, offspring, so on and so forth. Those genetic clocks that fire off that are the genes propagating themselves through these various organisms. But we also have microscale. And for a long time, uh, we looked in the brain for where's the clock bit, right? <laughs> here's the bit that does the language. Here's the bit that does the thinky. Here's the bit that does the memory. Where's the clock bit? And what we found is probably every bit has its own clock. We actually have a bunch of different clocks running in different ways. And almost all of them are response-driven. The most common example of this is circadian rhythms right? We respond very um, sensitively to the amount of light and to the frequencies of light that are coming into our light sensing organs, which includes our eyes and our skin. Our skin is very much a light sensing organ that takes in quite a bit of data about the qualities and quantities of light that we are experiencing. And so we can extrapolate from that, that if we have these three main qualities. We have light as a quality of, of the physics of the universe that we sense and relate to and respond to. We have matter or mass as a quality of the universe that we interact with, relate to, respond to. And then the other one is time. We have time that we relate to and respond to. Um, usually we understand that as a quantitative thing, an hour two hours, a day, a year, a month, so on and so forth. But we also have qualities of time if we pay attention. We have times when we feel happy. We have times when we feel sad. We have uh, time that feels long. We have time that feels short. We have time that feels sticky and uncomfortable. We have time that feels very comforting and very relaxing. And so my own understanding of not linear time is not focusing on the quantity and velocity of time, but focusing on the qualities of time and seeing that the quantity and velocity eventually maps a circle. Time is cyclical. Uh, you know, days repeat, months repeat. Uh, breathing repeats, heartbeats repeat. All of these measurements of time that we have without a clock are all cyclical. Now, even a clock back in the old days goes in a circle. I don't know how many people still have analog clocks around, um, but they're all, mm -hmm. you know, we originally started measuring time. Now we measure it um, through uh, the beats of a cesium atom. Uh, but you know, we've measured time with pendulums, we've measured times with uh, mass, uh, like sand, uh, hourglass, yeah, hourglass with sand in it, that's a movement of mass, so it's a measurement of gravity, which is a kind of uh, bending of time itself. When we, I know we've talked before that when you bend space, you get gravity because uh, of the amount of mass there, but, uh, really it probably works the other way. Time is bent and therefore there is an accumulation of mass because gravity is 
the process is the result of bending time. Mm. Am I just babbling? You're getting a blank look on your face. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're talking. You're talking about um, stuff like um, when it gets into quantum physics and Einsteinian um, perception of time, time yes, yeah, space, general relativity, and special that, relativity. That that. That, that, that's where you start getting my, my blank expression because <laughs> I've tried for a long time to really get a, a grasp of this and it, it doesn't work too well for me. <laughs> Very difficult. Yeah. Well, so let me talk on the magical side of things. I think we have these, these three qualities of the basic physics of the universe that emerge. Uh, very readily when we start talking about faster than light travel or space travel or how the light of the stars gets to us or how we can only see so far out in the universe and then there is literally a time barrier um, that we cannot see past and, and that sort of thing. So three qualities, where do we know three qualities? Uh, everywhere in magic, right? We've got um, alchemy, astrology, and thaumaturgy is the three pillars of the Western tradition. We've got salt, sulfur, and mercury in alchemy, right? We've got the uh, representation of the basic cross of matter inside the spirit circle, the foundation of the compass. Those are the three things, the matter, the spirit, and the circle, the containment. So all of these ideas, uh, there's the three pillars in the tree of life, severity, mercy, and mildness, um, land, sea, and sky. Threes are everywhere, and it's because of a fundamental nature of the universe. But we've got these three qualities. We can even say uh, distance, velocity, and time can be related to this because these are the three foundational principles that we use in physics, right? So all we got to do is figure out what plugs where. <laughs> That's the magician's cheat code. You don't actually have to understand the thing. Um, if you know the correspondences, because then you can just be like, this works like this. So this works like this. Now, in order to make the link-ups, you need to understand very well, but you can also invest in authority and trust that somebody else knows what they're doing and makes the links. So my link is alchemy is salt, right? Transformation of the physical. So that's mass, that's matter. And... Uh, astrology is probably time, right? It's the study of time, the qualities of time. That, that's Mercury. That's that highly changeable, volatile thing. And then thaumaturgy, which is the interaction with the divine. Well, that's got to be light, right? Because we know from the vast majority of things, divinity is light when we get into the magical world. God and, and all of those things are always light. So that's our sulfur. So now we've got that map and we can understand that map through the compass because we already know how these spirit matter and um, the encompassing relate to the compass. We've already got a diagram for that. So we've got our horizontal axis with matter. We've got our ver vertical axis with spirit, that's light. And the only other thing in that diagram is that outside edge, that circle. So that's time. And time is cyclical, right? It comes around again. It has different mark points where it interacts with the light, where it interacts with the matter. And it has different qualities as it moves through those points. 
it's either approaching one of those points or it's leaving one of those points or it's balanced in the middle somewhere and those reflective qualities because light is is causing the reflection and the balance of matter in the two poles tell us about those qualities of time when we map it up on our compass that makes sense and so the same way you can take a compass and you know pull bits up into different planes or, or fold it in half to make the different points meet in different ways well that outside ring is time so if you take this quality over here and you want it to to resonate with this quality over here you just have to find the the resonating midpoint the the frequency that makes them both come alive and vibrate and respond mm -hmm. to one another and once you find that frequency you can then fold them together and move through that spot or push push that resonance to the point where it creates a new divide and opens up more time makes time expand and creates a bigger pocket there for time to fall into does that make sense trying to explain yeah, how i understand this <laughs> Yeah, so it's about resonance and frequency, and that 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 helps a bit. <laughs> yeah, I would say my my foundational principle is not that time is linear. My foundational principle is everything is frequency. Yeah, light that's, that's, comes in a variety of frequency. Matter is just a variety of frequencies of light that is collapsed, and time is that thing that manipulates frequency time is that quality that modifies frequency like matter is the quality that modifies frequency in a different way but you've been time you create gravity right so mm -hmm. if you unbend time that would be light traveling backwards which violates the laws of causality which uh, materialism says you cannot violate the laws of causality but I'm a fortune teller, so uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I don't know about that. But um, if you bend time the other way, instead of down into gravity, theoretically you should be able to bend time into ungravity, right? And we have all these legends of the high-level meditators and the people who are the gurus and, and have achieved samadhi and all of that. And what happens? Their bodies emit light and they float. So, you know, I think that this is all connected into one another, um, woven together. Oh, there you are. Yeah, I think you're back. There we go. Sorry about that. So, yeah, I got, I got the bit about the gurus. So, um, when when they're in those high level states of that high level meditation and that connection with the divine right they there are two qualities that people repeatedly talk about their bodies emit light and they float they levitate which would point to the manipulation of time just in the other direction yeah yeah i think i think what what might uh, be an obvious question from most people would be how are these things applied um, to 
I guess our everyday life, um, but to our magic in general. I mean, obviously, yes, we can reach certain states of uh, power. The Hindus would call cities, um, like levitation, etc., etc. Um, but what kind of applications can we look at in terms of spending time of increasing gravity and decreasing gravity or mass um, through through the spending of time? Well, I mean, I started spending time and messing around with it and playing with it when I was a delivery person. That was my job. I went into work in the mornings. I had about 30 minutes to do uh, the morning paperwork and everything, and then I had to go out and pick up cases, come back, do them, do the, the work on them, and then I had to go out and deliver them all uh, at the end of the day. And I was always rushing. I mean, you know, that's what a delivery person does, tries to make deliveries as fast as possible. And so I started with, man, I wish I could just like slip between the seconds, like splitting lanes you know, <laughs> slipping between the cars. Everybody's stacked up here and they're just sitting. They're just waiting for their next spot to go in line. But there's all this space and we're only sitting because it's the rules. And I mean, when you're driving, you know, um, 1500 pound vehicles that will kill someone, I agree with the rules. I'm not advocating anybody go splitting lanes and violating traffic laws and that sort of thing. But that was the idea that started this for me was if I were in a smaller vehicle, I could slip between in this extra space and I wouldn't have to wait in line for the next minute, for the next second to come because that would be agreeing to linear time. And back then I did absolutely believe in linear time because it was the only model that I ever had and everything reinforced it and so on and so forth. So that's where I began was slipping between seconds so I could do deliveries faster. And I would purposefully not look at the clock in my car, except when I was at destinations. That was the only, only way I could manage this at first. Because otherwise I'd just watch the minutes tick down and I'd just get later and later and it would take me like two hours to do my deliveries. But then, you know, I had a little clipboard that I kept so I could mark off that I delivered everyone and I started just writing down the time when I was there. I'd pull up, I've arrived, I glance at the clock, oh, it's 4.02, 4.02. Go in, do the delivery, come out, get in the car, go to the next place and I glance at the clock. And I realized that uh, once I started doing this and this slipping between seconds, I had some verifiable feedback of what was going on. So I did a week of deliveries without doing anything so I could get a baseline. This is how long it takes me at this time of day because traffic's always a factor. And um, then the next week, I would not look at the clock and I would slip me in my car between those seconds and just kind of fold in there through that resonance. And I was at first shaving five minutes off each delivery, which wasn't a lot proportionally, a little bit. But after about uh, two weeks of doing this every day, I was, I had cut my delivery times in half. Instead of it taking two hours for me to do all my deliveries, it took me an hour. And I wasn't speeding because I, I don't 
want to speed on the road. I don't, you know, I don't want to do anything that would endanger anyone else or, or that sort of thing. So I didn't have to do it that way. I could do it just by kind of um, building that resonance and kind of pushing time a little wider so that I had more of it to do what I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, let me just go over to the chat because there's some comments uh, and questions here. Um, Luna said, uh, I've experienced the bending of time a number of occasions. Not sure that it was me doing this after giving it some thought. I felt I'd slipped into a liminal pocket and stretched time there. Uh, this is related. I'm just going to skip down to Luna's other comment. I don't think I've ever believed in linear time, totally unable to use it. Uh, not understand. I have given up trying now. Uh, there is similar now time for me. Simply now time. For me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Deb asked, uh, so like the Tibetan monks, when they levitate, they manipulate time, causing gravity to raise them. Basically, what's that mean? Yeah, I'm not saying that they're purposely manipulating time as the goal. Mm. They're meditating and they're connecting with yeah, divinity. The, the goal That's the goal. I think um, that process shows us one of the ways in which time, light, and mass are interconnected and can be manipulated with using the human body as the tool. Actually, I think there's something we need to mention here because it was something that I only learned recently that kind of read and thought oh well that's obvious why didn't I? it's something that is not taught in school um gravity so in school and i think this goes for like a large majority of the people on the planet we are taught that gravity we have gravity because we that the earth is spinning which is causing a magnetic force in the center which is pulling everything down that's how gravity is explained and taught. But if we have a look at the Einstein explanation, I think it was the Einstein explanation, um, it's actually more like if you had to look at a, a cloth and you know it, it's a flat cloth, you put a, a ball on this flat cloth, it then bends it mm -hmm. on you know, in a, like a, almost like a cone, but it's not a cone. But it, you know, it's enough to kind of bend the cloth down. Mm. And then you, you take a ball bearing and you throw that. What it's going to do is it's going to circle around. If it was at a constant velocity and keeping that constant velocity, it would keep going around that, that mass, that ball, because it's got this bent piece of fabric. And that's kind of how gravity is explained. It's not about this um, ball is spinning, therefore it's creating a magnetic force, which is pulling everything into its, you know, everything that is, is within its perimeter or within its um, influence, pulling it into to it. Like the moon is sits in its particular orbit because of the earth is spinning. But no, because the moon doesn't spin and it's got gravity. Yep, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, yeah, uh, special relativity, uh, Einstein's explanation, it is gravity is a function of mass. 
you know, more mass, more gravity. Yeah. Um, but when I talk about the uh, gravity as a function of bending time, I'm talking about the same equation. Just we put the, you know, like you manipulate an algebraic equation so that you eventually get just one variable on the side. So you can solve, solve for X. We're not solving for X, we're solving for Y. Same equation. We're just looking at it from a different perspective. And I also think this is kind of the, um, the differentiation between what you learn in school, which is like the most basic understanding to get you by, and what we're talking about at, at college and, you know, working levels where you need to actually understand how this stuff works. And it's way more complex than what they teach in primary school. And that's true of every single science. What you learn in primary school are the bare bones sketches with a lot of stuff filled in to get you by. It's like learning to spell with the wooden blocks. You're not going to learn cursive that way. You're not going to learn about why there's an S in island because these guys wanted to be more Latin and thought we needed these unpronounced letters and all this other stuff. You're just going to learn that there's an S in island and quit asking weird questions, you terribly precocious child. You know, um, so all science has that um, primary school level explanation and the assumptions that we make from that and even the the straight logic of that usually isn't how it actually works. It's just simple enough to get by and answer the questions like, why is the sky blue? Well, refraction and reflection. There's a bunch of little particles bouncing around up there. Red wavelengths are slow. Blue wavelengths are fast. They're bouncing pretty fast because they're getting a whole bunch of energy from the sun. So hence the sky is blue. Refraction and reflection, you know. Uh, but it's not actually blue. You can't go up there and find any molecule that is blue because that's it's about the bouncing of light waves. Um, it's always clear all the way through unless you're going through a cloud, which is full of water and dirt. So, you know, we've got that, that issue. And I think in order to do magic effectively, um, you're going to have to develop those higher level understandings of the stuff you mess with. If you're going to be an alchemist, you're going to have to learn about metallurgy or organic chemistry because that's what's happening there. You know, um, if you're if you're going to mess with time, you need to understand the physics of time and and what's happening enough to be able to plug it properly into a magical framework and then do the magic you usually do. Yeah, I wanted to actually raise that point about gravity because simply because you know that's for my entire life that's what I thought gravity was and then I was reading a book I'm actually uh, I don't know but yeah I'll during the break I'll go grab the my tablet fantastic book um, about quantum physics um, but it starts from Einstein's uh, theory of relativity and starts moving through and it, it it talks about time and how time moves different space for one body versus another body, which I'm going to read the whole thing again because it just confused me. Um, <laughs> but just the whole point about what I knew as gravity was not gravity. And I even sat my sister down a week later after reading it and say, gravity. And she said, well, this is, no, it's not. <laughs> well, I mean, 
it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird to think about, but if you're like really tall, if you're like six foot, two meters or taller, and you live a good long life, like a hundred years, your feet are older than your head. They've actually passed through more time, maybe only a second at that rate, but time is denser with gravity. And we talked yeah. about, you know, um, that that good old explanation of, you know, these two people are moving through space and this one travels at this vector and so on and so forth. And time, uh, you know, slows down for them and speeds up as they come back, as the twin leaves Earth and, and comes back and, and time will be changed. And it's because of those angles of refraction how the time is hitting or the light is hitting differently. I mean, it's why the double split, double slit experiment does that, that wave particle thing is because of those angles of incidence. And this all comes back to frequency. Everything is frequency. If you have two waves and you have two um, peaks overlap, they produce a double high peak. And if you have two troughs overlap, they produce a double O trough. And if you have them overlap where they're exactly the same, they cancel each other out and disappear. And that's how you get wave interference patterns. So the same thing happens for time, but because we're always moving through time ourselves, whenever we can't observe time outside of time, just like we can't observe space outside of space in the physical, you know, that's what creates those time paradoxes, so to speak, because we're, we're in it, we're still in it. But as magicians, we know that astral projection is a thing. And we figured out how to observe space outside of space. So I say that since space and time and matter and light are all locked up together in this um, relationship, they cannot be separated from one another. They're always in a frequency relationship. They're always within parameters to one another. If you change one, you change the other two. Always. They cannot be separated. So if you can observe space outside of space, then you can absolutely observe time outside of time. And if you can poke around with space, that means you can poke around with time like you can poke around with light. We've, you just, you know, um, now I can't remember who said it. It's the, give me a lever big enough and a place to stand and I'll move the earth. Yeah, yeah, but it's that yeah. same kind of principle. You just got to find the right inflection point, and that's yeah. resonance. Yeah. But I thought it was important to note um, the whole thing about gravity because we're talking about time affecting gravity, and anybody who still has that concept of gravity from that primary school perception is not going to. This is not going to comprehend at all. So I do encourage <laughs> anybody who wants to actually um, you know explore this further you're going to have to look at uh, um, things like gravity uh, general theory of relativity um, time itself uh, within quantum physics and quantum physics is a great place to actually go for all of this because it all gets embedded into it um, I'll I will get that book title just now um, okay, look at the other questions we had here um, Carrie asked, so how would we determine where to grasp, grasp time in order to fold it? Uh, how do you feel two points? For me, it's a lot of math. Um, 
understanding that um, relationship of high mass and uh, light and then mapping that to my compass accurately which takes some trial and error um, whenever you do that you know you got to put things down and see if it works and if it doesn't work you can put them in another order and see if that works um, which is the math of it to me just like solving algebraic equations you should be able to flow through this logic and have it line up and then um, finding the middle point finding the the resonance finding the thing that makes them both wake up and, and enliven and make them movable because you have to have an electromagnetic force um, in order to excite an electromagnetic field um, and, and light does this light does this all the time I mean that you know that's how we boil water um, and so it's really that same kind of process of uh, getting into that resonance and being able to use that resonance to change the resonance of other things, which I think is just like that's magic, in my opinion. Finding the resonance, vibrating with it, moving it around, manipulating it. That's the magic bit. That's the, the technology we're all using when we meditate when we do mantras when we uh, vibrate names when we manipulate light in certain ways when we do yoga and manipulate our bodies and change the electro bioelectric field that's coming from our skin those are all all that get in the frequency find the resonance move it and i hope that was clear i don't know well, this this is a very difficult and com complicated topic, and I think it's you know if anybody is interested in exploring it further, it's going to take a lot of examination, experimentation, um, and really poking about. Um, you, know, you know, I don't think it's something we can kind of say X, Y, and Z go and do it. Um, a bit more than that. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm understanding it all correctly anyway. I mean, I'll be happy to share like some physics videos and stuff on the server if anybody wants to to look into that. But um, I think you're right. You really have to get a pretty good grasp on physics to understand what yeah, time not, is. Yeah, it's not just the understanding of it. It's after you've got the understanding, it's how do you apply it? How do you find these two things, which um, you then then need to find the resonance and which actually enlivens both of them. And I assume then we have to actually step into that resonance ourselves. Um, well, you know, you're the source of that resonance. Yeah, I know. Um, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to think of this in terms of I'm um, an everyday person who uh, sees things and experiences things very physically, um, you know, I have these two things that I need to try and find and try and find a resonance for my evidence, both of them at the same time. But what are these two things? Uh, because I'm thinking of physical items. I'm think, thinking, I'm thinking linearly. So trying to take yourself out of that linear thinking lateral kind of is the first step and then developing that from there. But until you can do that, trying to understand um, is gets, gets kind of difficult. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I think studying physics helps with losing that linear thinking. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, getting to where you understand spin and electromagnetism mm -hmm. and the generation of gravity and all of that sort of stuff. And, and part of this is also just getting exposure to a model that works because a lot of times if we don't know that it's possible, we'll never try. You know, we'll just, it's not that we will discount it because somebody told us it was impossible. Although with time travel, um, we had told all the time it's impossible and we haven't broke outside of the, the cone of, of light, the cone of causality in time travel. We can't violate causality because then the cause happens before the effect. However, we know that the cause um, doesn't happen before the effect when it comes to our brains and our processing of information and emotions. You can make yourself feel the happy by acting happy. It's the other way. It's the actions that produce the emotions. It's not the emotions that produce our actions. We're just not consciously aware of that because we got a filter that filters out that delay and lines thing up, things up in what we think is a causal way. But it, it doesn't have to happen that way. And we don't even have to perceive it that way. But our math doesn't work unless we stay within that cone of possibility, that cone of future possibility that is confined by the universal speed limit, the speed limit of light, which is also the, the limit of causality. It's what creates that boundary that we cannot violate the laws of causality. And I think that's probably the next step in quantum physics it is getting, um, that information from neuroscience, that cross-discipline, and figuring out possibly faster than light travel or tachyons, which are just super fast particles that can go faster than light. Um, but I, I don't think that we're going to find out that on this spectrum we have of the limit of light and the limit of mass, you know, black holes and, and the speed limit, I don't think we're going to find that there's stuff past it like we did with the visual spectrum of light. You know, we can see this bit, but there's stuff past it. I think we're going to find that they do that, that it's a torus. And it, it rolls around in that, that toroid shape and connects, and that's what we're going to figure out. But that's all hypothetical weirdness. Yeah, but with the spectrum of light, I mean, you did mention once the magenta actually exists, the combination of the light's got to bend around itself in order to bring the infrared and the uh, ultraviolet together to create magenta. So it doesn't really exist. No, magenta is not a <laughs> thing. Very interesting. Our brain's just <laughs> filling it in because it mm. thinks that those should connect when they don't. And there's no, there's no such spectrum. It's not really there. So, yeah. Mm. All right, should we go? I'll come back to the comments fill up hot chocolate and stuff. Yep. And I'll go grab the, the book. All right. We'll see everybody just now. All right. Don't go away. Put more questions or whatever in the comment in the chat. And we'll see you just now.
Welcome back to the Wildwood. And we are talking about time magic today, uh, which is getting very interesting and complicated. Um, <laughs> all right, I have that book. Uh, let me just put the title in the chat. It's The Elegant Universe by Brian Greene, uh, subtitled Super Strings, Hidden Dimensions, and the Quest for the Ultimate Theory. Okay. I just found it a fantastic book. I went, I went and researched some. Because I, I really, when it comes to science, especially quantum physics and stuff, I'm a bit of a dummy. Um, it's just, you know, I do have a logical mind, but I'm also artistic. But science and quantum physics, I don't find logical. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I understand that. Most people find strange. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, when it comes to, when it always comes to science, I do, I do battle. But I find it incredibly interesting, so I try. But uh, I went researching, and this just kept coming up over and over and over again when it came to quantum physics, quantum mechanics, and stuff, um, as a good intro and beginner's book. So I found it very fantastic. As I said, I just got to read it again. This sounds really familiar. I got to right. go look at the cover, though. You know me. Don't know <laughs> anything without the cover. Oh, yeah, okay. I recognize that book. That's a really good book. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Uh, let's go to Luna's comments. Um, I was told by a teacher that the monks fill themselves uh, with the air element of order for them to take on this piece. Yeah, I, I think I've kind of heard that as well. So. Uh, I haven't heard that. Sort of naive, naive kind of approach. Thinking. Yeah. I haven't heard that. I yeah. I have some um, family, godparents, who are involved uh, with Tibetan Buddhism and have lived in the monasteries and that sort of thing, and they've never said anything like that. It's just meditation and, and achieving mm -hmm. that divine connection. And the other thing that happens, not only does uh, gravity apparently decrease, but they live longer. They seem to slow down time. Their heartbeat slows down. Their breathing slows down. Um, you know, uh, there's all of this stuff about they don't need to eat as much because their metabolism slows down. They're feasting on light and breath. And they live extremely long lives through this process. Uh, you know, preternaturally long. I'm just thinking that in relation to filling themselves with the air element, um, could have been a misunderstanding of breath and honor. Mm. That's a good point. Um, and, you know, that relationship. But as you were saying earlier, I mean, feet are, you're standing more than you're lying down, your, your feet are older than your head, uh, gravity itself. So if you are physically lighter um you're not being pulled by gravity as much as everybody else you are a bit longer. yeah you know, well and it's just i think it's really important to get the understanding of these these three bits down very well how they relate to one another and what happens when you change the quality of one or another um and we learn that from the physics equations that tell us about what happens when you change the quantity of one or another if you have um, 
more light, more um, speed, then you have less time and less mass, uh, which we can see by, you know, the actions of gravity and how that's produced. Gravity is a byproduct of the interaction of these. If we have all the mass and none of the light and none of the speed, we have black holes. So massive, it's so much gravity that not even light can escape. Light is held by gravity. Photons, which we consider massless particles, can be acted upon by gravity at this extreme. So that has to be a boundary, just like we hit the other boundary, the, the speed limit of light or the speed limit of causality, where there is no mass. But it's not, it's not um, zero, 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 zero mass, right? Because it's still being acted upon somehow, or, or it wouldn't have that limit down at the black hole end. But it's very, very small. But I don't want to use the word infinitesimal either, because soon if, if we go back to pre-Einstein and we get into, um, you know, Newtonian physics and the idea that light is limitless, the speed of light is infinite, well, out go all of the equations and there's no such thing as mass. Because um, so you, you can't ever subtract from infinity and get something other than infinity. It's always going to be infinity. It's It's like zero it has those weird properties um so there has to be a bound on both ends that we have this this three-part sliding scale that are always in a constant relation to one another um what's interesting what came to mind now was a book i read a long time ago and i cannot remember who who wrote it it was a book about astral projection and it had a blue cover i've got one with a blue cover but it's not that book um, but uh, what, what was interesting is they did experiments with the astral body and everything else, and they found that the astral body has mass. Oh, yeah, yeah. It has weight. It has weight. And the further they went into the past, the less weight the astral body had. The further they went into the future, the more weight it had, yep. the, more, the more mass which they led them to the understanding that you cannot um, manipulate the past, but you can manipulate the future. Because you, have, because you have more weight, you have more mass, you can move things around, you can change things, but the, the less mass you have, the less you are able to do that. I remember reading those experiments about the weight of the soul and, yeah. and astral projection and how that worked. Which, okay, so mm -hmm. think about that. We take that premise, right? Less mass in the past, more mass in the future. Okay, mm -hmm. so we've got that that relationship. Where is the least mass at the speed limit of light? Mm -hmm. Right with photons, and and what is light? What is the limitless light? Uh, Kabbalah taught us that, right? So how mm -hmm. do you manipulate the past through the limitless light through the connection with the divine? We can't do it, but God can, goddess can, divinity, that force, mm. that's where that change happens. And there's a limit how far you can get in the future. Because what happens when we get too much mass? We, we approach black holes, we get to an event horizon. And in fact, there's a current theory 
um, right now that the outer edge of the universe, uh, you know, we can't see past a certain point, there's a, there's a time lock, that that's a black hole, that's an event horizon in itself, where these relationships, these things break down. So that would be so far in the future that we uh, hit that critical mass that turns into a black hole. Yeah, but the other part of that is that they also believe that the universe is constantly expanding, it's growing. Well, that's that's pretty old science. Um, that's not necessarily a belief anymore. Oh, okay. I'll put it I mean, um, the universe that we're in, we know there is physical expansion because we can look at things and watch them shooting away from us. You know, we, we can measure that. There is a phase shift in light, definitely. The, uh, the universe is expanding away from us, but not um, in an infinite way. That's not necessarily the theory anymore. We've taken, Newtonian physics had a lot of infinites built in for these big things we couldn't understand. And we're much farther along in our understandings now. And we, we keep knocking these mm. infinites off of the table because they don't work. Yeah. There are limits to things. They're just uncomprehendingly huge. So if to get to the future, we get to the, the, or the expanse, the exterior of the universe, which becomes mass more mass, we then, metaphysically speaking, in my mind, we would then have to go inward into the infinitesimal in order to get to that limitless light. Yep. 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 That's that's the process. Microcosm and microcosm and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. And, and see, these are these are things I keep talking about, but I don't put these together in this regard. <laughs> yeah, I, I I mean, our metaphysics is built on our physics, you know. Mm. Um, and I really consider magic the frontier of science we don't quite understand yet. Magic yeah. is is where we can poke stuff, and then it goes into a black box, and we're not real sure how that works and then this thing comes out and we can consistently go through that process that's magic that's repeatable magic even if we aren't super mm -hmm. clear on what's happening in the black box but the black box is always shrinking we're always carving pieces away and figuring out a little more we're always like oh mm -hmm. wait this this i know how this works we found the physics for this and Part of that, we may never carve away all of the black box. It may always remain in the metaphysical because the constraints of physics require material supposition. You know, um, one of the big hangups is in a materialist worldview. Um, Venus is Venus because it is made of molecules of Venusian stuff. Right? The material is what makes it that. Earth is Earth because the molecules on Earth are Earthian molecules, so on and so forth. But in a, a frequency mindset, it doesn't matter what the stuff is, the frequency, the harmonics, the ratio at which the, the resonance is around the sun at the point where Venus's orbit is, is what makes it Venus. You can put any stuff in there. And it will become Venus because of the resonance, because of the frequency that is produced by the awesome power of the sun that creates gravity. And we create gravity by 
spending time. So, you know, thinking about all of that and the sun is the creation of light through these processes. So thinking about all of that and how that all fits together, I think is very telling for the foundations of a compass. And once we have it stitched into that compass, then you move it all around just like you would any other element. All right, uh, let's get back over to the, because um, I've lost my place. Now. <laughs> so Luna also asked, uh, Rev Kai, do you have a special spell to make one better at physics? And I think I know what your answer is going to be with this, which kind of, it, 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 it raises the uh, chicken or egg question. Um, let me take a guess. So you're going to say, to get better at physics, you have to go back in time and implant certain knowledge into your into your younger self, which that makes you better at physics in the present. But you've got to learn how to do that first before you can understand physics to be able to do that. So chicken and egg. No, I just say like read read a lot of physics books, and <laughs> you know, practice some algebra. the The math of physics the math of calculus is actually not difficult. It really is fairly simple math. When you realize that there are more than four operators, there's plus minus, there's uh, multiplication and division, and then there's things like sine and cosine and exponents and that sort of thing. You just, you're just adding more operators to your soup. Um, but it's not, it's not like crazy complex math. But it, you probably, if you're not comfortable with it at this point in your life, you probably didn't ever have a model that taught in a way you could understand. So you probably just need to like explore a bunch of different models till you find somebody that's speaking the language that gets through so you can understand it. And yeah, I think okay. that's true. I know for... a lot of people who just, when you say math, it's just like, and I'm, I find, you know, I'm, I was actually pretty good at math, but when it started getting to calculus, it's that was me. Well, as an, an adult, as an adult mm -hmm. algebra and calculus tutor, I, I mainly um, tutor adults in college for algebra and calculus. Most of what mm -hmm. I do is just psychologically unblocking the full stop when they hear the word math. Yeah. They've built up this idea that they're bad at it, that it's scary, that they don't understand it for whatever reason. It's very common. Mm -hmm. And once I can get that psychological block out of the way and find a way to speak to them in their learning style that they can understand, they don't need me anymore because I've taught them how to read mm -hmm. the textbook. I've taught them how to find their own answers and ta-da and off they go. <clears throat> and I, I really mm -hmm. wish that like um, that was being done on a mass scale, but I also wish the original psychological blocks were not happening. Um, in that, you know, plenty of people with dyscalculia think they can never, ever do math because when they were a kid, they couldn't do it and nobody offered them any help. And mm -hmm. that was it. You know, everybody just reinforced, you can't do this. And, and on it went. And I'm sure there are people that will never understand parts of math. Uh, it's a language and it just may not be your thing. And that's perfectly fine. I'm sure you have many, many other talents that the world requires. It doesn't have to be math. Mm -hmm. And I know I talk in math, but that's the language I understand. 
Yeah, when you, you I mean, you're working with it all the time, isn't it? Yeah. Um, that's. I mean, that's another thing. I mean, languages. I'm terrible at picking up languages. I can't. My code. Yeah. You know, it's a language. It's yeah. Just, yeah. It's a different type of language. I don't. Know. Anyway, moving on. Uh, Deb said, uh, "Yes, one must learn and understand what a uh, typo, what you are messing with." Yes, I said. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You need to to learn and understand what you're messing with, no matter what that is. Uh, in magic, yeah, learn as but, much as you can. But at, but at the same time, that learning process and understanding process is making mistakes. Mm, absolutely. We, I think, I think we have to to kind of book learn to a certain point and then we have to put the books down and go do it and if we don't understand we'll we will understand stuff yeah um you know because we're going to screw up and <laughs> we'll learn from that absolutely but it's a necessary problem you need you need both sides of the equation you need active and passive learning um it can't just be passive and it can't just be active neither one gets you a full robust picture or a good understanding you have to apply it mm. And, and then that cycle repeats. You read a bunch, you, you absorb a bunch, you do a bunch of passive learning, and then you go try it out. And you do a bunch of active learning, and then you have more questions. And so you go back, and you do more passive learning, and you try it out, and so on and so forth. Uh, Luna said, yes, please, for the videos and the book's title. Have we got a channel for time? Yep, yep, we do. Okay. I'll put the the book uh, in there as well. I put the book in there while we were on the break, but I'll I'll put some videos in there too about physics and bending time and gravity and that sort of stuff. And hopefully Lee will come back here in just a moment. <laughs> ah, the joys of internet. He did say the wind was picking up, so hopefully. It's just a brief pause, not a bigger problem. Well, maybe not. We'll be right back, see if I can get Lee back. Well, Lee did have an internet outage, so he's uh, getting that rectified. So hopefully he'll be back in a minute here. Um, in the meantime, 
Let's see. Carrie says, I think that the part that's stumping me is that I haven't used a compass and don't fully understand how it relates to time. I may have to re-listen to the compass round discussion from a few weeks ago. Yeah, I would, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. Um, but also the compass is the visual and tangible physical representation of how a witch understands the world. It's the the uh, manifestation of our worldview, where we bring our worldview into a concrete something that we call a compass um, that we can then uh, use to understand the relationships between things. By mapping the compass, by mapping our world, we have ways to, oh, it looks like Lee's back, just a second. Okay, we are back, all back. So, I had just read Carrie's comment um, about uh, not understanding a compass. And I was saying, you know, a compass is uh, the manifestation of our worldview. It's a map of the world. It's a tangible way in which we can understand the relationships between things. Um, when we have all of those lists of correspondences, those are like compasses. They help us understand the relationships and the correlation between things, what's like this and what's different. And when it's all about frequency and resonance, those relationships, especially those subtle relationships, we start with this pole versus this pole. We start with opposites that share the same frequency, you know, black and white, good and evil, that sort of thing. And then we develop that uh, classic Cartesian grid and pull it into two dimensions. And then we subdivide that. And then we layer it up in multiple dimensions. And that's a compass. We're just um, mapping information in a way that we understand. Now, not every witch is going to map time under their compass the way I've described. I'm just describing what I did and how I understand it and what I do. Everybody's got a different compass. Everybody's got different understandings of how they put things together. But that's that foundational tool for doing any kind of new exploratory magic, in my opinion, is you, you put it into the framework you already know how to manipulate. And that's the compass for traditional witches. And then you take it from there and do things with it. I think there's probably an extra step as well. Um, I mean, if we understand the, the compass as the worldview, um, it does kind of give us a three-dimensional representation of things. So we, we place particular correspondences in the north, others in the south, others in the west, others in the east, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And this gives us kind of a three-dimensional perspective of our own worldview, um, which makes it easier for us to understand things. But from that, from that point then, you have to start folding things together. And this is where that step needs to come in. It's kind of like looking at um, the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. We see it as a particular glyph, which has the sephira at, you know, all kind of stacked above each other, but they're not actually above. It's more like an onion, so it's layered. Um, so as we, we, you know, we move from, from one, one world into another world, into another world, into another world, and, you know, the emanation or the, the physicality of things become less or more, depending on which direction we're going. But it's that everything is all in the same space and time 
um, it's not, this is where linear and natural time thinking starts to come into play as well. We've got to kind of get out of that linear thinking uh, because it's all happening in the same moment and space. Um, but even using the word moment starts to talk about linear time. So it gets difficult to explain. Um, but yeah, it, it's, that, it's that step of taking it from that three-dimensional thing, which we are, it, it's easier for us to understand and trying to understand that everything overlaps and is present in, in everything at the same time in, in space, um, which is where that, that leap comes in. Yeah. Yeah. Just my input. <laughs> I think there's, there's a lot of different glyphs. There's a lot of different diagrams for understanding everything, the universe, life, the universe and everything, you know, um, We've got the tree of life. We've got the flower of life. Uh, we have a compass. We have um, the six-pointed star. We have the platonic solids. We have um, valence shells and molecular structures. I mean, tons and tons of these. And it's just different ways of organizing information so that we can learn more about it. And I think also, I mean, coming back to the microcosm and the macrocosm, if we review it in terms of that, um, microcosmos always keep saying the microcosm reflects the macrocosm so what happens out there is also happening in here and we always sort of point to the body and it is the microcosm is kind of the body we can look at the chakras as being the entire cosmos moving through different worlds breaking through layers etc etc but if you think of it in terms of the macrocosm being the extent the boundaries of the universe which is total mass coming all the way down into the body but then going further and further and further and further until we get to an infinitesimal sized point that is not visible that's the microcosm so that becomes the infinite light but it's so tiny but it is everything at the same time yeah so, yeah because that's not yeah. <laughs> that's that's not a limit that's a point <laughs> and the point is, is the a, encompassing yeah. See, this is the part that excites me. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm sure I've shared it many times before and talked about it, but imaging the 10th dimension, um, have a have mm. a look at that because that's what we're talking about um, through the Tree of Life glyph and, and all of that sort of stuff because it works in a base 10 system uh, to do that. And mm. I mean, all of this works in whatever base system. Time works a lot better in a base 60 system. Um just because of the way 60 is divisible into so many whole numbers and so many primes and that sort of thing. And we know that there is a basic sixness to the universe. That triangle structure is stability. And you put a bunch of triangles together and you get that hexagrid that I was talking about with the uh, grid cells in our brains that that's the way they fundamentally map things out. Um, so maybe it's us that have that fundamental sixness to them. Um, maybe it's a universe. Mm -hmm. It's kind of hard to tell. It's one of those. You cannot separate the observer from the observed. So the point of quantum entanglement is that you may never know which one influences the other, but you know that they are entangled. They cannot be separated. Mm. All right. Um, Deb asked, uh, yeah. Here now. Um, how do you feel when one 
how how do you feel when one spends time? Um, how do you know? It doesn't feel any different for me. Um, I know because there's a clock. Mm, that okay. independent so you, you verification. Get done in a particular yeah. linear frame time. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been time to do chores. I've been time to study. I, I've been time when the conversation has gone on so long and I can't take it and I don't want to be rude. And, <laughs> you know, all those sorts of things. Um, and the way that I know that it's happened is I look at a clock before and after and but uh people around me don't seem to notice because it seems to be kind of a bubble we all experience people not around me will make comments wow how'd you get here so fast you know you went in the yeah. other room and you did all that how'd you do that so fast i, I get that yeah. kind of stuff all the time but the people that are right there with me if i'm having a conversation with them they don't notice until afterwards when they look at the clock. Uh, Pamela's here. Hello, Pam. Hello, though. All right, then. Um, Luna said, uh, same teacher has mentioned a certain Swami filling himself with earth elements who prevents a train from moving, and Tulpas filling their cells with fire element to heat their cells, water to cool. Yeah, well, first of all, a tulpa is a, a thought form. And, and the elements you're talking about, those are Western philosophy elements. And the way mm. you're you're talking about them are in a Western philosophy, not necessarily a, a Eastern worldview or a, a Buddhist worldview. So. Yeah, it may have been something like um, Blavatsky or the you Unfortunate know, Center, which somebody went in that direction. Though. Yeah, yeah, that's possible too, because H.P. Uh, Blavatsky was in that search for a universal truth kind of thing and really mixing that um, Eastern and Western worldviews. And Lee has frozen again. Gonna be one of them days, one of them days, one of those evenings. Uh, Jono asked, have you covered going back in time yet? Sort of. We touched on it a little bit. Um, I do talk about doing things like going back and, and messing with my old uh, self and, uh, you know, funking around in the mechanics to make different things happen. Oh, Lee's internet has dropped again. There's a storm rolling in. Ah. So, my going back in time generally doesn't work because you can't take mass with you. <laughs> um, you can't move mass along that gradient. Um, because of the causality cone, because of the limit of the speed of light. So the way that I do it is not through uh, the same way that I move forward or bend time, but or slow or speed time up or down, 
I guess, uh, bending time. So it's more of going into the past self, which is accessible inside, so to speak. Um, so the way I, I see people or living entities is kind of like a long worm <laughs> at this end. Their babies first coming into manifestation, and while they have mass and manifestation, they go through these changes through linear time, and then eventually they lose mass and they pass into the light. And increasing the light is the way that the time goes backwards, decreasing the mass, increasing the light, moving backwards through that. And the only accessible point we have through that is through our own soul or through our own astral body. So you have to go like into the inside of that time worm. Looks like Lee's coming back. And inside that time worm, then you can go back through your previous selves and put things in there. Um, but you can't seemingly do it with anyone else. And then you come back to this time and they have manifested. So I was just answering Jonah's question if we'd talked about going back in time yet. Mm, I'm definitely going to have to go back and watch this <laughs> stream today because, um, yeah. Missing a few Sorry bits. About this, everybody. Yeah, we've got, we've got a storm coming and I think it keeps knocking the internet out. But uh, yeah, I'm having problems with the booter anyway. Okay. Um, we're over there. Yeah, Luna said, oh, yeah. Exactly. Sapphire said, uh, I love math, but math doesn't use <laughs> I don't know if there's anything else after that because my chat got disconnected and then it just says, unable to connect to chat, please try again later. All right. Um, so I'll read the chat. Luna says, I have dyscalculia and got a dyslexic math teacher in my mid 20s. Passed my GCSE math for scientists with A. Congratulations. Third time around after failing in my teens, finally got a teacher who could unlock it. It makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, getting somebody that can unlock it for you and explain it in a way you understand. It's so ex important. Um, Deb said, I guess I've been timed then, according to your examples. Yep, possibly. Um, I'm sure that people do this intuitively, just like so many other magical skills are intuitive you know there are so many so many things that people have a knack for so i'm sure people are doing it without all of the um math and everything i went through of figuring out physics to to poke about with time um yeah, yeah i'm sure we do i think i think we all experience whether we're doing it or not i think we all call it kind of experience the slowing down and speeding up of time um you know, we have a. We always talk about having a long day, or just we went really fast, and you know, that's bending time. It's manipulation of time in a fashion. Yeah, yeah. I, I think for a lot of people that um, slowing down and speeding up does not feel that it's something in their control. And, uh, mm -hmm. but that's really actually fairly easy to take control of. If you want to slow down time, make yourself bored. If you want to speed up time, make yourself happy. Mm. You know, that uh, manipulating mm. magic through Resonance. emotion, connecting to those qualities. And that's connecting to that resonance. That resonance you've already experienced, 
and, and recreating that resonance to recreate that experience. And that's one way of doing it. Absolutely. But there's just as many ways to work with time as there are angles on it. It's not, not a limited field, I would think at all. All right, um, let's see, I'll let the chat back now. Uh, Luna said, uh, sorry, my bad, for you to tell her, I can't think of the correct term. Quite possible that's the term you were given, um, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, actually talking about shwamis and stuff and such, and, uh, I've been thinking a lot this week about um, the concept of samadhi, um, and that is kind of taking you into a space, into even a space or time, because there's no space or time there. <laughs> I mean, it's that total suspension of everything. There is no time. There is no space. Um, so, yeah, that is that is very much going right into the center of the self, into that limitless, limitless light where there's no, there's no mass. Yeah. Um, well, very, 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 very little. Uh, which, I mean... That's that point where we understand that center of the self is the same as the boundaries of the universe, the boundaries of our universe. Mm -hmm. We can't, we can't get, see past it. We can't get past it because there's no mass there. It's the, the limit mm -hmm. of light, you know? So that's why I think those, those things are toroidal. They're not, um, they're not linear. Actually, I remember um, my Kabbalah teacher, and I can speak about this because he wrote about it in his book, um, so it's, it's not public knowledge now, but uh, he used to speak about the nil center, which is literally going into the center of yourself, mm -hmm. where you become divinity. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, he, he, he called it the nil center, which goes back to previous uh, old uh, Jewish texts um, that it was founded. But you always think of nil as being the nothing, and when we think of nothing, often people think of darkness, blackness, black hole, edge, you know. An absence of light. If we think about the edge of a black hole, it's... Eh? An um, absence of light instead of a abundance of light. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and when we talk about the limit, limitless light, I think the first thing that comes to mind is actual light, but it, when it's limitless, it's probably an absence of light itself. Well, um, if all you know... So, yeah, it's an interesting concept to try and... Yeah. If all you know is light, how do you know what not light is? Yeah. If all you ever have experienced is light, and you have never experienced the absence of light, you cannot define light. Mm. Because you don't have a manifestation, I I you don't have really a polarity. Yeah, I think I think it's just interesting when we talk about these things and how we perceive them immediately, um, according to what we've learned um, from childhood, compared to the paradox that you then have to start thinking about. You know, it's it becomes completely contradictory to what we perceive immediately, uh, which is. I just find it really interesting. Yeah. Well, it's contradictory to what your worldview thinks you're perceiving. Because your worldview yeah. is yeah. the filter 
through which you interpret everything you perceive. And I mean, this is let it let go of the lust for result. Don't hold expectation. It will limit your magic. You have to let go of those things. You cannot um, allow those filters to cut off 90% of your perception. And it's it takes some time. It takes some work. It takes some skill to, to build through that. All right. Um, Kerry asked, could you bend the points of space-time within a specific setting, like bending points of the house together to make walking around quicker? That's a good question still. Yeah. I mean, that's just folding space, uh, which is, you know, one of the, the cornerstones of learning walking meditation. Uh, to move through the landscape like that. Um, and, and we find that in the myth and the lore and that sort of stuff when we hear about, um, you know, the giant strode across the world and first stepped here in this continent and then spanned the ocean and stepped on the other continent. Or, um, you know, how uh, Shiva took two steps and that was all of creation. And, and that describes the earth and the outer plains and the, the space of consciousness and the space of the limitless light. Um, so this this idea is embedded within so much of our mythology and our lore across the world. Um, and, and it's, um, like I said, it's one of those things you learn with walking meditation. It's pretty foundational to that practice and, and pretty early on. Because it's also like... Uh... I can't remember the name of the ship now. Uh, Freud's ship. In the S, um, where he used to fold it up and put it in his pocket. Oh, yeah. Freud's ship, yeah. That can fold up. Mm. Uh, okay, that's, Jono, just, that's just uh, an orange. I'm going to have to go back in time and watch your. Sorry? Oh, right. Have we got a delay on the video? Yeah, we got a bit of delay. Go on. <laughs> okay, sorry. Uh, Jono said, uh, I'm going to have to go back in time and watch your whole stream. Are you suggesting that the astral, mental, and Akashic planes have a gravitational mass aspect to them? Yes. Mm -hmm. And we'll have to go looking, but there are studies that support that. We're not just making that up. Um, there, there have been lots of studies that have found those masses uh, and... That, that gravity can act upon because that's how we determine weight. Um, so there is a weight for the soul, there is a weight for the astral body, all that stuff. I'm going to have to go find that book. I've been looking for a long time. Um, all right, so Deb asked um, all right, some type of ritual to bend time. Um, type of before comment is there some type of ritual to bend time? Yeah, there's rituals, there's spells, there's all sorts of things, but it doesn't matter what they are if you don't understand what's happening behind them. If you don't understand the mechanics, following a set of, of protocols isn't going to do anything for you. Because you have to use your instrument, your body, your frequency generating resonance manipulating machine that you get in order to do the actual work and 
if you have a ritual for that, whether it's through mudras or mantras or uh, specific ritual movements, whatever it is, however you generate and manipulate that resonance, that's what works for you. But if I just give you a list of words to say and and uh, steps to take, it's not going to do anything if you don't know how to, to work the machinery behind it. Unless you use Fatamicus. Fatamicus is the machinery. Oh, Fatamicus, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but then, as we said, you know, you've got to be careful with Fatamicus because that was probably created um, within a linear time worldview. Mm -hmm. um, so you are going to, if you, if you try to speed up time with Fatamicus, you're going to have to allow for a period where it's going to slow down in order to balance that out by the books. Um, as I've said, I've, I've used Fatamicus, and that's exactly what happens. You know, you've got to have that balance because that's how it's created. Yeah, yeah. That no no shortcuts here. <laughs> um all right. Uh Jono said oh wait, hang on, sorry, I skipped one. Sappho. Rev I need to start getting my feet wet in astrology to to improve the timing of workings. Any good sources to start with? Um to do astrological magic, I would probably start with um, Christopher Warnock's book. That's about astrological magic, and I can't remember the title. That's useful. Um, he also has a, a translation of the Picatrix with John Michael Greer. And, um, you know, if you've got your basic astrology down, you know, aspects and signs and planets and rulerships and... Um, you know, terms and bounds, exaltations, that basic stuff, <clears throat> then you're ready to go on to those other things. I recommend uh, Warnock's book, uh, Before the Picatrix, because his translation of the Picatrix is, is wonderful, but the book he had, I think it's just called Astrological Magic or something like that. Um, it's got some real base uh basic steps to walk you through that and then you can pick up the picatrix or the pgm and, and work with those um but astrological magic is its own thing uh, in addition to just timing um if you just want to learn timing you just need to learn basic astrology and apply those principles i would probably recommend um uh, Ancient Astrology by D uh, Demetra George, Volumes 1 and 2. That's a really good foundation and grounding in that. Um, or uh, Chris Vernon's Hellenistic Astrology, which is a great foundation. It's going to be way more in that book than you need just to do astrological magic. Because um, he's got chapters on zodiacal releasing and all this other stuff that's fascinating that you don't really need in order to do that. I'm trying to think of something smaller, but most of the smaller, faster books are going to be modern astrology and very interested on psychological interpretation of your natal, and that's not going to help you. 
So, yeah. I'll, I'll look up that book and, and post it on the server. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and also, just skipping ahead quickly, for Tamakus, I will try and find the document. It looks like the original site's gone down, and as we were saying, all of the old sites which didn't have the SSL certificates um, have been slowly being blacklisted. Um, well, I know um, uh, what's his name? Joseph oh, Peterson is having a problem with esoteric archives because of the mm. AI and the secure, but he's working on fixing it to get the the SSL certificates so that it doesn't get uh, classed as spam. But yeah, when Esoteric Archives is back up, that's a place to go for all sorts of things. I would say you can also just go read uh, Chris Warnock's blog, renaissanceastrology.com, learn a ton of stuff. But uh, for astrological timing and astrological magic, you need medieval or, or before sources. Modern sources, like I said, aren't going to help you because the the texts like the Picatrix and uh, the Science of Stellar Images and all of those sorts of books that have that kind of magic in them were written before the advent of modern astrology, so they're not using that system. They're using an older system. Contemporary to them, but not to us. Well. So I was actually talking about Photomicus, the uh, actual document for Photomicus. I know. I went off. Oh, okay. The book is called... I don't, we've got a delay here, so I'm not sure what's happening. Yeah, I'm filling time. The book is called Secrets of Planetary Magic by Christopher Warnock. That's the one I'm thinking of. And you can go to his website and buy all of his books direct from him, which is really nice. All right, uh, I'm going to go on to Jono's next question. Um, fascinating. Do you approach time magic from a spiritual view or from a physics understanding or a mix, maybe? Both, mixture, everything. I, I don't All think they're the different. <laughs> the, more, the more I learn about physics, the more I am um, verified, validated, in the view of a spiritual universe. Mm. Not in the view of an omnipotent, omnipresent Godhead figure with a beard in the sky or something like that, but the, that the idea that everything is connected, that light is divinity and light and manifestation are not different things. The uh, process of life, the manifestation, the, the animating spark uh, of divinity that connects all things is present in the math equations. It's right there. So I don't see them as different. All right. Um, I think we're going to bring today to an end. We're be having some minor technical difficulties on my side. Um, and next week, I forgot what we were talking about now. The Witch's Pyramid. Uh, oh, um, the Witch's Pyramid, yes. Okay. And we're going to have a short right. show next week. Next week. Uh, only an hour. Yeah, I've, I've probably got load shedding uh, at eight, so we're probably going to have a short show. Um, so we'll do the Witch's Pyramid. 
All right, then. Thanks for joining. Thanks for the questions. Thanks for the chat and everything else. Great. Loved it. And see everybody next week. Yep. And if you want to keep talking time and physics and magic and weirdness, join us on the server. I'm always happy to talk about these things. <laughs> I find them endlessly fascinating. So thank you all. Bye. <laughs> Bye, -bye.